0: Well, we get to continue our sermon series on being the church for Battle Creek, and uh, I, I hope you've enjoyed what we've, we've covered so far as we've worked our way through the, the book of Acts. Again, not going chapter by chapter or verse by verse, but highlighting some of the major events in the life of the early church. And you may be wondering, like, why couldn't we just look at the scripture? Why does it have to be being the church for Battle Creek? Why couldn't it just be being the church? Like, what is the emphasis on Battle Creek? Like, why do we even need to look at that? Um, But have you ever ever moved? I mean, I know some of you have grown up in Battle Creek and have lived in this area your whole life, but have you ever moved or gone to a new place, like, and not known anything about it, right? right, so that was kind of what was happening for us as the Griffin family last, well, about this time last year when we started talking about maybe come in this, this way. And uh, so, you know, Google is a free service, so the first thing I did, obviously, was Google Battle Creek and start figuring out what this area is, what the, this community is. I mean, obviously, I creeped on the church's Facebook page pretty hard and looked at all the live streams and pictures and stuff. And, um, but started kind of trying to get a sense for the community, the schools, the neighborhoods, all that type of thing. And uh, one of the things I ran across was called the Livability Scores. Have you, have you heard of Livability Scores? It's not really a, a thing you talk about on a regular basis, but um, I ran across Livability Scores for Battle Creek. And uh, for the, the message to start out today, I just wanted to share a few of the, the Livability Scores for Battle Creek to give you a perception of what my perspective was, or my perception of Battle Creek was as we were preparing to move our family into the community. So <clears throat> I don't know if uh, you guys way in the back can see the screen or not. Um, you pull up your phone to the Facebook live stream, you could probably zoom in there. Um, but the first livability score was cost of living. And then there's a little grade in the corner. And Battle Creek gets an A for cost of living. Um, it's 22% less expensive than the US average city. Um, it's 10%, um, yeah, Michigan uh, is 10% less expensive than the rest of the US. Um, the next livability score there, oh, go back. Can you go to the previous slide? Yeah, uh, so there's two scores per slide. Um, at the bottom there, Battle Creek crime, uh, it's a big red F is what it says. Total crime is hundred percent higher than Michigan. Uh, per 100,000 people, there was 4,186 crimes, which is 68% higher than the US average. Uh, chance of being a victim, this is a fun number, I don't know how they calculated this, but 1 in 24. Um, chance of being a, a victim of crime, it's 68% higher than the U.S. average. Uh, but year over year, crime went down 1%, so we're headed in the right direction. Another 100 years and there'll be no crime. Um. <laughs> now we can go to the next slide. Uh, Battle Creek employment, uh, big red F. Uh, median household income is 38,216, that's 31% lower than the national average. Uh, Income per capita, uh, 22,000, that's 25% lower than the US average. Unemployment rate is 6% and it was 26% higher than the US average. Uh, Battle Creek Housing got an A minus, median home value of 80,000, rent price 699, and home ownership was 60% of the people own their own homes. Is that the last, I think that's the last livability score, I think. Um, So anyways, this was just kind of a snapshot. And there's some, there's some good there, but even some of the good things, like the score that said uh, cost of living, um, you can say, oh, it's, it's cheaper to live here, but also it's cheaper to live here because wages are lower, right? So it's, there's a connection between that. It's not just, well, it's all roses. But this was kind of the reality of our, our neighborhoods, our communities. Um, if you live in the Bow Creek area, none of this probably surprises you. If you've been here for a long time, you've probably seen the community change over the decades. Um, and so as a pastor coming to a community like this, coming to a church, obviously come to pastor the church, but I think I said it with the, during the board interview that not only do I want to come minister to the church, but I want to minister with the church to the community. Um, I think the church has a mission outside of our walls here. Um, but if you look at these scores, there's a lot of things that aren't quite going right. The crime one is not great. The job situation isn't the prettiest. Um, so, do we, as the church, respond to this by just criticizing our city? The other day, well, a few weeks back, I was getting my hair cut, and a lady asked me what I was doing for a living these days, and I said, you know, I pastor a church, and she said, oh, really? And then asked, and asked um, if I liked pastoring in Battle Creek and how long I'd lived here and all this type of stuff. And she just went on this tangent about how miserable Battle Creek was. She's lived here her whole life and hated it, and it was just an awful place to live, and she was surprised when I said that I was enjoying my time here. Um, So, I guess that's one option. When things aren't going the way we want them to, we can just criticize or, uh, you know, be critical of things that aren't going well. Um, In... In the Bible, there was this, and you've probably heard this, and it's going to seem a little bit out of context, but there was this phrase that comes up in the Old Testament, but then Jesus repeats it as well, this eye for an eye. Have you, have you heard of eye for an eye? Right. <laughs> how that usually gets used is when somebody does something bad to us, to me, then my response is to do the same thing back to them. I mean, if you're a sibling, like this is how it works, right? He hit me, I hit her, right? This is how it worked. Eye for an eye. Um... In the Bible, though, Eye for an Eye was originally introduced not as a prescribed revenge retaliation um, response to when something bad happened to me or something, somebody was doing something I didn't like that I did something bad to them, but it was a limitation. It was prescribed limitation. So if somebody hurt me, I could only respond up to the level in which they hurt me, right? So the injury couldn't, the response couldn't exceed the injury. So as we look at our communities and look at maybe people or pockets or demographics or areas in our communities and say, well, they're not doing things the way that I want them to do, or they're doing something that hurts me, or they're doing something that's destructive to me, um, I think as Christians we need to have a, a perspective on our response. Because the, the truth is that as Christians, we, what we think about God and what we believe about God, kind of like what goes on in our head, like what our doctrines and or what our theologies are, um, probably isn't as important as how we live or respond when things aren't as we'd like them to be. So we look at our communities, we look at our neighborhoods, we look maybe even have relationship problems, and things aren't how we'd like them to be. So the question isn't you know, how do I get even, or how do I attack that individual or that situation, Um, but how do I respond in a Christ-like way? It's not a matter of are we happy and filled with peace when things are going our way, when we're winning? Um, but what kind of picture of God do we paint when things aren't going our way? What do we do when the situation doesn't pan out the way that we want? What do we do when we get an F on our livability score? Right? What people think of our faith, what people think of this church, what people think of the Bible, what people think of Jesus and God, will ultimately be shaped By our actions, our reactions to situations, our behaviors, our attitudes, what people think of God and Jesus and the church and all of that will be shaped by how much grace and forgiveness and love we offer others. What we say and what we do reveals so much more (coughs) about who we are and what God is really like than a statement of beliefs on a church website or a catchy phrase on a church sign. God is present in the world and is at work in the world, and I believe that to be 100% true that God not only shows up in special sanctuaries, special rooms in a church, but God is at work in the world around us. But how we live, what we say, what we do, is the thing that defines for the world what God is doing, what God looks like. God is at work, but the world may not be able to see him. It is through the lens of the church that the world understands who God is. And if you were here a few Sundays ago, um, I preached a sermon about Stephen being stoned to death, being the first Christian martyr. And in that story, there was a man named Saul who was just kind of a side character. He was off to the side. Uh, the men who stoned Stephen took off their cloaks and laid them at, at Saul's feet. Um, he not only witnessed this mob-style execution of Stephen, but he probably approved of it gave his support for it. Um, he may even have been responsible for it. <coughs> Today we look at the story of Saul as he meets Jesus. And some of you know that Saul's name gets changed to Paul. Um, but so much more changes for Saul than just his name. Um, we're going to look at the the book of Acts chapter 9 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 19. It'll be on the screen um, if you've got a Bible or Bible app or whatever, you can follow along there as well. But Acts 9, 1 through 19, it's a pretty good chunk of Scripture, so um, stick with me. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found there any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, (coughs) I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings, And to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food... He regained his strength. This is the word of God for the people of God, and a response can be, thanks be to God. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this story of Saul who becomes Paul, who encounters you on a a street in the middle of nowhere and found himself worse off for the experience. And yet you called one of your own to go and encounter Saul and bring him healing and restoration, witnessing to the life that is in you. Father, help us to hear what you have to say to us today. But more importantly, help us to live out lives of obedience in which the world can see your healing, redemptive love. We thank you and love you. Amen. So Saul, who becomes Paul... It probably isn't a stranger to you if you've been around the church for any length of time. Um, Saul was one of these Pharisee types. Some of you may recall that Pharisees are people who took obedience to the law to the extreme. They took the rules for the temple, for example. Things that you were supposed to do in the holiest place in the whole wide world. Things that you were supposed to do in order to be righteous in that most sacred place. They took those rules and said... Everybody has to follow them everywhere you go. They aggressively tried to maintain righteous purity and ritualistic cleanliness. They tried to follow all the rules in the Bible. They never met a rule that they didn't like. And their heart's desire, I mean, at their core, they truly desired for God's people to be pure. They wanted God's people to be holy. They remembered through their histories and traditions the destruction of the temple. The destruction of Jerusalem, the exile, this was not fresh in their memories, but lived in, through the traditions and the histories. They remembered the exile and the defeats, and they attributed that to the sin in their communities. Right? They concluded that the reason for all of that, the temple being destroyed, for losing Jerusalem, being exiled, they attributed all of that to people not being obedient to the law that God had given them. And so when they looked at the world around them, specifically when they looked at the religious lives, the religious world around them, they knew that things weren't right. The world needed to change. This is what the Pharisees started, their foundational belief was. The world needed to change. This Israel had the Romans ruling over them. Well, that's not right. This Israel struggled to establish itself as an independent people. They were always conquered. They were always ruled by somebody else. There was these foreign powers that always seemed to just be in charge. And that's not right either. They longed for the days of King David in which Israel stood proud, stood strong, was blessed by God. They concluded that the problem, the reason for all of this, was the sinner's. There was just too many sinners. In the Old Testament, it was the kings and the leaders that were judged for leading the people away from God. Like If you read the prophets and read some of the stories in the Old Testament, it speaks pretty critically of the kings and the leaders who led the people away from God. The Pharisees moved that responsibility to each individual person. No longer was the criticism of the kings or the rulers... But the, the people, the communities, these sinners—what are you supposed to do with sinners? The world needed to change, but how do you change the world? And there was different schools of thought. There was different answers to that question of how do you change the world. I mean, the the first one is you could just shame the sinners. Like that was a good starting place. Make sure that they knew that they weren't measuring up. Make sure that they knew they weren't good enough. They weren't as holy, they weren't as clean, they weren't as pure, they weren't as righteous. And that's a place to start. <coughs> from there, you can kick them out. You can exclude them from the community. Now, the Pharisees didn't have like governmental rules, so they couldn't kick people out of Israel. They didn't run the cities or anything, but they controlled the religious life. They created boundaries. They created gates. They created barriers that kept people away. You can't come in here if you're not good enough, righteous enough, clean enough, pure enough. They could be gatekeepers that said people weren't welcome. But then there was a group even above and beyond that. They were a little bit more zealous. They were a little bit more aggressive in their response to sinners. They would organize attacks. They would attack the Romans, military, like ambushes. They would form groups that would serve mob style justice, like what we saw happening to Stephen a few weeks ago. And uh, that's what we see with Saul at the beginning of the Bible text today. He had received authorization, permission from the, the religious rulers, the chief priests, to go out and hunt down and arrest these Christians in the name of purity and righteousness. They weren't living right. They weren't doing the right things. They had abandoned their faith and Saul was going to go out and fix it. And he had gotten permission to arrest women and children to go to the synagogues and track down these unfaithful people. And that was the way that Saul was going to change the world. He was going to make sure that those who didn't fall in line suffered, faced the consequences. Either you're on our side or you're going to pay the price, is what Saul said. Either you get on board or we're going to make the consequences so dramatic that not only will we get you in line, but other people that witness how we treat you will not want to make the same mistake that you made. But can I ask you a question this morning? Does that sound more like how God works or how the world works? Is inflicting pain and making other people suffer to get what I want the strategy that God employs, or is that more of a tool of the world? And if there's any doubt in your mind, if you have questions about how God works to redeem the world, the cross of Jesus answers this question once and for all. The Romans and religious leaders tortured Jesus. They made him suffer. They beat him and ended up killing him in an attempt to get what they wanted. Even murder was not off the limits, was not out of bounds for these worldly powers. But we believe that God, instead of destroying and inflicting suffering on others, that God, through Jesus, willingly suffered. He endured and even died in order to achieve the mission of making all things new. God's primary attitude towards us, all of us, is love. And a loving God that we see in Jesus would rather endure suffering, take suffering on himself, rather than inflict it on others to get his way. So I think it's pretty obvious that it's the worldly powers, not godly powers, that use their power to cause others to suffer. I mean, that's the message of the cross, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He would rather endure suffering and inflict suffering. Saul, who would have been an Old Testament expert, would have known this passage of scripture that Tabitha read this morning, this Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 tells us of one who suffers at the hands of the powers of the world, this wicked generation that God comes to redeem. Isaiah 53 shows redemption and and righteousness coming from those who suffer, from the one who suffers, and not by the one who causes the suffering. And this is some speculation, and there's no scriptural support for this, but I I can't help but think, after Saul witnessed Stephen's stoning, this brutal attack on Stephen, I, I can't imagine that that quickly left his mind. I think as maybe he's, he's walking these streets with, you know, from, from Jerusalem to Damascus with nothing but time on his hands. I wonder if maybe he started to replay that scene in his head. Maybe he kept playing it over and over again. Maybe for the first time the words from Isaiah 53 actually made sense to him. Maybe he heard these words. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? So do you think these, these words from Isaiah 53 could have replayed in Saul's mind as he replayed Stephen's execution over and over again in his head? Do you think that these, uh, he might have started thinking that, these, that Stephen's words and Stephen's actions better represented God's righteousness than did his own? When he looked at Isaiah 53 and, and replayed those scriptures, do you think maybe he started to evaluate who was doing the the suffering, and who was causing the suffering? Who is the one that was more righteous in this situation? Do you think that that incident may have had an impact on the guy who later wrote in a letter to the Galatian church that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Against such things there is no law. Again, that was all speculation, but I, I, I can't imagine that Saul walked away from that incident with Stephen unaffected. And God tells Ananias in, in Acts 9.16 that we read together a minute ago <coughs> that he was going to show Saul something. You remember what he said he was going to show Saul? He said he was going to show him how much he would suffer for the name. And immediately, Saul is under attack Under attack by the Jews, and shortly after that by the Romans, Saul, who becomes Paul, becomes target number one for these powers that ruled his world. He's arrested, he's imprisoned, he's shipwrecked, and eventually, Saul, who becomes Paul, is executed while sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So, what happened to Saul on that Damascus road? He encountered the risen Christ. He still wants to change the world. He still wants God's people to be righteous. He wants God's people to be faithful. He still wants to see the world around him to know God and to live according to God's ways. That was always his mission. And the mission didn't change. But Paul's method did. Saul figured out that you don't change the world by using the tools of the world. You can't bring peace by increasing violence. You can't bring uh, comfort (laughs) by inflicting wounds. Saul finally understood that you change the world by having your heart changed. The world will not change when you hate it enough to attack it, and I, I think that's a really important thing to realize, we live in a culture that kind of manufactures outrage. It's an enemy-making machine. We're told every day who we should be uh, identifying as our enemies and what we should do to them. But Saul learned that the world will not change uh, when you hate it enough to attack it, but when you love it enough to redeem it. In Saul's letter to the church in Rome, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's love, it's goodness, it's peace that will change the world. You change the world by having your heart changed and living according to the ways of Jesus. So the invitation for us today is to let God change our hearts so that we may participate in the mission, in God's mission, of redeeming the world. Let us embrace the way of Jesus as the only way of life. Let us stop repaying evil for evil. Let us... Stop loving our friends while hating our enemies. Let us stop using the tools of the world in our attempts to build something of God. It just doesn't work that way. If you look at the world around you filled with hate, anger, bitterness, conflict, violence, suffering, abuse, corruption, scandal, brokenness, and pain, and you ask how you can possibly make a difference. I mean, you can notice that things have to change. This is not the way that God intended it to be. It's not the way that God wants it to be. You might look at how far off the mark the world has gone and ask, how can I do anything in the middle of all of this? I'll tell you, as a pastor, it's overwhelming at times to look at the communities that you're in and and feel that you're somehow responsible to care for these people. (laughs) How can I do anything in the middle of all this? And the answer is that you change the world by changing your heart. It's God's love poured out through us that will ultimately transform the world around us. Let God give you eyes to see the world through the lens of love and compassion. There's a a point in the story of Jesus where he looks at the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. He grieved for it he lamented over it because this city, this people that he loved because God loved it, could not find peace on its own. Until your heart changes so that you are motivated by love for others, that you are willing to endure suffering in order to be a peacemaker, to bring the good news, unless our hearts change, we'll end up just throwing stones at the people that we disagree with. We'll end up throwing stones at the people that we blame for things. But then nothing changes. Nothing's fixed. There's just more suffering. There's more conflict, more violence. And the the world will continue to be a place filled with darkness. But if God changes our hearts and true transformation and God's Spirit dwells in us and transforms us and sanctifies us, God makes us a light to shine in the darkness. If you let God send you on a mission to bring hope, not condemnation, then you'll start to see things happen around you. If you remember, it only takes a small light in a dark room to remove the darkness from that light, that room. Right? A tiny light in a dark room lights up that whole space. And so I invite you today to have your own Damascus Road experience. Not that you can prompt Jesus to come and blind you and knock you down with light, bright light or anything like that, but have your own Damascus Road experience in the sense that you start to see that it was love and grace that brought you into the family of God. It's not your ability to follow rules that allows you to be called a Christian, a child of God. It is God's love and grace that brought you in. It's God's love and grace that cleans you up. It's God's love and grace that transforms you, that, that binds you to a community of people that God is gathering together. So understand today that people cannot be forced, coerced, pressured, or even tortured into God's kingdom. They can only be loved into God's kingdom. You can change the world by having your heart changed. And at one point during Jesus' ministry, he told the following statement to his followers. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the question for us today is whether we believe that or not. If we bind up, if we lock up hate, then hate will be locked up. If we set love loose, if we set love free, then love will be set free. Do we believe that we have the keys to the kingdom? Do we believe that we have the ability to unleash God's love into the world or to lock it up? Do we believe that the world around us will either experience the kingdom of God or not experience the kingdom of God depending on how we live? Will we offer grace? Will we be patient when others mess up? If we do, then the world will know patience the world will know forgiveness. The world will know grace. If we don't, then the world won't know it. If we choose to be angry, unforgiving, graceless people, then the world will know anger, spite, and bitterness. The church is on a special mission. It's on a very special task. Jesus. Jesus has given us the keys to the kingdom. We can turn the kingdom of God loose into the world through the way that we live together. Or we can lock it up. We can change the world by having our hearts changed. The world doesn't need more critics. The world doesn't need more attacks, more stones thrown at one another. It really doesn't. The world needs love. It needs grace, it needs healing, it needs redemption. It needs God's presence in its midst. And if the church, as God's people, aren't the ones bringing it there, then how is it going to get there? We can change the world by having our hearts changed. We invite the praise team to come as I close with a word of prayer.